Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we're in part five of our series on Joseph. We're nearing the end. And last week, as we continued in the series, we, we, we moved through uh, chapters 42 and 43, and we had a focus on the subject of guilt. We started by saying that everyone has guilt, both by our fallen nature and the sort of the actions that emanate out of that fallen nature. Then we asked what we do with that guilt. Do we confess it before God, or do we harbor it? Do we just bury it down deep, and then if we do that, if we don't confess it, if we do harbor it, what does that guilt do to us? And we noted that unconfessed guilt, unconfessed sin, corrupts both our relationships with other people and, of course, our relationship with God. It distorts those relationships, and we saw that last week with the brothers and their response to the circumstances that they found themselves in. They assumed that God was punishing them because of their unconfessed guilt. Now, a caveat is important here. God does punish sin. But if we are trusting in Christ, well, then that punishment has already been executed on him. He has taken that punishment for us. But even that wonderful truth doesn't mean that our sin has no consequences. Each of us has to deal with the messes that our sin uh, makes in our lives. But if we confess them, And God is not executing some further punishment on us, and we no longer carry the guilt of those sins. Now, Joseph's brothers clearly had not yet done that in last week's verses, and that was made evident through those verses. But this week, we're going to see a change, at least in terms of Judah, but largely for the whole whole of the brothers. What Judah does with his guilt is a question that we get answered. What change does he make? And of course, subtly, or maybe not so subtly, again, the question, what do you do with your guilt? And I hope that the answer is this, to repent. That's the charge last week. It's the charge every week. There's only one response to our guilt before God, and that is repentance. And true repentance I have a little bit of a a picture here. True repentance is like this. It's well pictured in this little uh, image that we have on the screen here. It's a turn, right? It's a a complete turnaround, not a 360-degree turn, of course, because that would just get you back where you started, but a 180-degree turn. We said this last week, and we'll do it again. The only remedy for our guilt before God is repentance. And as we're going to see, Joseph is about to be convinced that Judah, and in some part the whole of the brothers, that Judah had repented and his his actions that we're going to see are really evidence of this. But before we jump in, let me just ask the question, do you need to repent? I mean, we we do a, a confession of sin each week, and in fact, when we do that, Genuine confession requires repentance. We can go through the road, we can go through the routine, we can say the words, but if we're not repentant in our hearts, then it's not real confession. 
why I always say, if you're trusting in Christ and his work, then you are indeed forgiven if there's real repentance. And even though we do that every week, maybe there wasn't. Maybe it's been a while since there's been. Maybe it's been a long while. Because of that, maybe, at least possibly, you're feeling that it's too late. Too late for you to do that. Maybe you've harbored your guilt for so long that it seems too late to repent. Now, you know theologically that that's not true, but emotionally, that's a different story. Your guilt is so deep, and it's settled so deeply in that it's just damaged so much, it seems impossible to fix. I'll bet that the brothers felt that way too. After all, they were carrying around guilt that was decades old. And for Judah, as we saw a few weeks ago, he carried that guilt so deeply that it caused him and probably all of the brothers to sin much more and in many more ways. It, it found its way out to create further messes. We can just think about the mess that happened with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as an example. And I point all that out to say this. What we're going to learn today is that it wasn't too late for Judah, even decades later, and that means it's not too late for you. It's never too late to repent and turn to the Lord and let him do his work in you. That's what he delights to do. That's what the gospel is all about. We're going to start in in chapter 44, and I just want to read a few verses here to get us started, and then we'll pray. I'm not going to put them on the screen. I'm just going to read them. Listen to these verses. And by the way, this is a continuation of the story. You might remember that um, the brothers come, come back to Egypt. They bring Benjamin with him. Um, when Joseph sees that, he puts on a meal, and the brothers are suspect. They think they're going to be taken captive by that, but that's not what happens. They have a meal. That, uh, Joseph makes good on his word. Simeon's given back to them, and uh, Benjamin gets five times the portion of everybody else, and it's celebratory. But, we read, starting in verse 1 of 44, then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Again, remember that was done before. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph told them. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke these words to them. And they said to them, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouth of our socks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who was found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. 
Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time in your word, and thank you for the power of repentance. You break us and remake us through that. To be conformed to your image, we pray that you would do that work in us even now. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, here's what we see in those opening verses. Joseph issues another test. He's framing Benjamin, as it were, for sharing or stealing the, the, the stealing so as he can keep him as a servant. So he steals the silver cup, plants it in there to make it look like he stole it so he can keep him as his servant. And I want you to notice something here that's really key. Joseph is staging, what he's doing is exactly what happened to his brothers. Joseph is, is bringing the brothers to a place of bearing responsibility for the care of their youngest brother, whom Jacob, their father, loved. Now, that should sound pretty familiar. And it should because that's exactly what happened to Joseph. He, too, was the most loved by Jacob, you remember, and it caused the brothers to hate him and be jealous for him and to plot against him and to sell him into slavery. And so Joseph, in essence, is asking this question, what would you do if you found yourself in a very similar situation, brothers? I'm going to set it up by taking Benjamin, the youngest and most loved son of your father, away. What will you do? What you did last time was to create an elaborate deception, lying to Our father, though he doesn't say that, about my demise, covering your tracks, as it were, covering your guilt. What will you do now? Are you still focused only on yourself, self-preservation, self-elevation, or have you repented of your sin and therefore learned selflessness, putting others before yourself? Let's see what happens. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that, I am a, that, that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, let's just make a side note here. We, we, there's plenty of ink spilt on the question of whether or not Joseph, as a Hebrew, should be doing such things as practicing divination. That's not really at the heart of the story, And all that really would mean is he would take a cup, he would fill it with water, and then he would drop oil in it, and it would do what oil does in water, make these weird shapes, and that was perceived to be a way to see into the divine realm, to see into the future, to determine things, which of course is sinful, and and later on in the the Mosaic Law we're told to not do that. But um, it's a question that's not really the focus here. The focus here is, if it's true that I could do that, then you should by no means try to cheat me because I can see that you're doing it. He's trying to make the case for that. Joseph said, what is this deed you've done? Do you not know that I am a man that can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. That's Joseph speaking. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. So here's what I want you to see. Despite Joseph's right to detain and force each one of his brothers into servanthood, or servitude, I should say, he declares that only Benjamin, the guilty one, will be my servant. The rest of you are free. You see how he's setting it up? What will you do? Will you just take your freedom and run? Give your dad some excuse for another great loss? Protect yourselves? That's what they did with Joseph. You see that? And Joseph is saying, are you going to do that again? He's giving them the out. You don't have to say and do that. You can be free. Just leave him with me. Let's see where you are. Because I know where you were decades ago when you did it to me. Let's see where you are now. Again, we want to take notice. What they will do will decide how Joseph proceeds. Here's the chance. It's a chance for them to just think of themselves, to be selfish. What will they do? Here's what Judah will do. He's going to tell the story, and then he's going to make his case. Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. You got to read this section slowly because he uses the term servant and my servant and your servant a lot, and it can get a little confusing. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again, which means you will not be able to buy grain and you'll not get your brother Simeon back. We went back to your servant, my father. Notice how he's just speaking reverence to him. Everyone's his servant. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And, and, and when our father said, go again, buy a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I came, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil 
that would find my father. It's a pretty striking thing that happens here. Judah makes good on his word. Judah is a changed man. It took decades, and praise God that he's patient and gracious and does his work in us. But Judah's a changed man. And what we're going to see is that Joseph sees that. He selfishly pleads for Joseph on beha- to Joseph, before Joseph, on behalf of Benjamin, offering himself in his place. That's what he does. He says, when you were younger, if I had offered you your freedom, you would have cut your ties with me or anybody else and taken it. And now he doesn't. It seemed that Judah remembered the guilt, his guilt, with repentance That's how he remedied it. That's how he turned. Now he's able to see past himself. And even his father's favoritism to sacrifice his freedom for another. Let me give you this quote from a man named Bruce Waltke. He writes, Judah is the first person in Scripture who willingly offers his own life for another. His self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the vicarious atonement of Christ. By his voluntary sufferings, heals the breach between God and human beings. We said this before, that what Joseph does in his pledge, his surety, is to prefigure Christ in that way. And now we're seeing it come to fruition here when he makes good on this promise. Chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. In the wake of Judah's actions here, the final test is past, and we read these words, then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence, understandably. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It's that theme of life and death again. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of, his, of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. And he describes everything that happens in terms of the providence of God. He's not pointing blame. He's not wallowing in any of that. He's seeing God's hand in all that happened. God has brought it about to preserve life, to set apart a remnant, which is a prominent theme in Scripture. And then we read that with Pharaoh's blessing, the brothers go. They tell Jacob that Joseph is alive. 
bring him and all that he has back to Egypt. And that carries us uh, kind of through the rest of, uh, well, actually to verse 15. So he says to him, that's what he says to him. He says, God has done this. And then he says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herd and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt. And all of, you, all of you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, that, his brothers talked with him. And so we see that, that uh, he does this, and then we're going to see the Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears about this. He hears that Joseph's brothers have come, and it pleased Pharaoh, and it pleased his servants, and Pharaoh gives him his blessing, and he says, you know, take, take whatever you need. Go get your father. Bring him back. We'll give him the best of the land. That's how the remainder of the chapter goes. We're going to give him the best of the land. But here's what he says to them. He says, as he sends his brothers, he says, do not quarrel on the way. Do not quarrel on the way. Why does he do that? He says, don't fight. On the ride home, it's probably a long journey, and that's why. And he was well aware that the brothers might likely have time to fight over anything that brothers tend to fight over, but particularly, who was to blame for selling Joseph as a slave in the first place? Here's the thing that I want to draw your attention to. You might be asking the question, wait a minute, didn't we just say that Judah had repented of his sin? Finally did the right thing with his guilt, and yes, he did, and yes, we did say that. He did it. But whether Joseph realizes it or not, old habits do indeed die hard. He did the right thing with his guilt, but how often do we do the right thing with our guilt? How often do we confess our sin, repent of our guilt before God, and then allow the enemy to replace that burden squarely back on our own shoulders? How often do we pour out our hearts at God's altar, falling wholly upon his mercy and grace and the sufficiency of the gospel, only to pick it right back up again? How often do we profess to believe that Christ's death satisfied God's justice, but act as if our particular sins are uniquely burdensome? So much so that, that we must add something of our own to the atoning work of Jesus, some form of penance to merit our forgiveness. It's easy, isn't it? All too easy, and the enemy knows it to pick up our guilt again. Oh, how the enemy would sift us like wheat, Jesus says, but that he prayed for us. More than that, he's died for us and risen again so that we might be made right before God. Joseph tells his brothers not to fight about what happened because he already told them that what happened was by God's perfect providence. Don't fight over the past, brothers, Good counsel for us to don't fight 
over the past. Don't give the enemy ground over the past that's been forgiven. Don't keep blaming yourself or others for your troubles. Don't pick up the guilt that you've already laid down. Don't shoulder the burden of guilt over sins that we've confessed before God. Don't minimize the glory and power of the cross and resurrection accomplished so that just as he lives, so do we. Don't, as the Apostle Paul says, keep any record of wrong, but instead rejoice in the truth. The truth that as we confess our sins and are assured that in Christ we have forgiveness, we rejoice that neither does God keep a record of our wrongs, but instead they are washed away in the shed blood of his son, Jesus. Hold on to that repentance because the gospel is sufficient. And don't let the past find its way back in to condemn you of guilt for which you are no longer guilty. As we move to chapter 46, some interesting and very important things happen there. At the end of 45, we're told that that the news of Joseph being alive, Jacob, his father, his heart went numb. You got to understand that. But eventually he believes. He believes his son. He saw the great provision that that, uh, Joseph, and of course with Pharaoh's blessing, sent with them, provides for them. And so he begins his journey to see Joseph. But he makes a stop. Joseph first stops at Beersheba to offer sacrifices to God. And this is a place of significance, really, to all of the patriarchs. And we don't have to get too far into it. But Jacob's father, Isaac, built an altar here. Abraham planted a tree here. He called on God in that place. He referred to him as the Lord everlasting. And so it has some significance here. And what we're told is that the Lord spoke to Joseph or to Jacob. He called his name twice, Jacob, Jacob. And and that speaks to the intimate relationship that God has with Jacob. And he assures him, Joseph's alive. In fact, Joseph's going to be with you for the rest of your life. His hand is going to close your eyes. That means he will be with him even at his death. But also to go to Egypt. And so Jacob continues his journey on to Egypt. And from there, we see Jacob's descendants. They're all accounted for. Now, that may seem like a boring thing to read. But chapter 37, where we began our series in Joseph, says that these are the generations of Jacob. And when we read this longer list here in 46, we're getting much more detail. In fact, we get a tally, a total of people, 70 in all, which speaks to a little bit of a foretaste of God's promise to Abraham, a promise that he makes also to Jacob at Beersheba, that God would make him into a great nation. And we see that beginning to form there in Egypt with the 70 people. Lastly, we get the father and son reunion of Jacob and Joseph. And it's a reunion that's so joyful for Jacob that he said he was content to die having seen his son. He lives 17 more years after this, but he's content to die there. And and I think it's striking to think about the fact that here his death or his willingness to die expresses deep satisfaction which stands in direct contradiction to the words he spoke to his sons if they had failed to protect Benjamin. Those were words of great sorrow unto death. He would bring my gray hairs down to Sheol. What we're seeing here is that the pieces of the chessboard are being put in place by God to bring about his next key redemptive historical work in and through Moses. 
That's what's coming together with some of this stuff. In fact, as we'll note next week, God's people are established in Goshen, outside of Egypt. Set apart from Egypt. And they're set apart by God's providence as we read at the end of 46 and into 47. And that'll bring about the, the charge for God's people to trust and follow him out of the bad situation into what at first would seem a worse situation in the wilderness. Every wilderness situation is bad, right? Only to lead them into the fullness of his promise in the promised land. So we're seeing some interesting things happening, right? So it's, he's, by the providence of God, he's moving his people there, but they're in Goshen. And of course, Goshen is the place that is distinct it's distinct, uh, set apart from the Egyptians, which is what God's people are. We see when the plagues happen that we see uh, elements of, of creation. Uh, darkness falls on Egypt, for example, but it's light in Goshen, for example. We'll see some of that there if you read into Exodus. And that's being set up for us here. But as we finish out, I want to ask the question again. I want to bring ourselves back to where we started. Do you need repentance? Has it been too long since you've repented for the only remedy for your guilt is repentance? The only true freedom from guilt is found in repentance before God. So as you can see, we're going to have the tables, we're going to have a fellowship meal, and I always like to ask a question, so in lieu of communion, uh, the breaking of the bread, uh, as a community, we'll break bread over, over a meal, and I always like to give a question. Here's the question I want to give you guys to think about as you come to the table, and it's reflecting on this idea of whether we need repentance or not. It's also on the, the steps sheets, if you're uh, interested in grabbing one of those. Let me just say this too. Of course, prayer is available. I want to encourage you to, to the spirits working here to, to seek out prayer from another. Come to me. And I want to start uh, your time at the table with this question. And I'll ask this question and then we'll pray and we can get started. While it took Judah many years, he did eventually learn selflessness. From this, we can see that God will always welcome a repentant heart. How can God's selfless act of love in Christ, in particular, for us, motivate us to live more selfishly for others? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this word. Lord, if you're working in your, by your spirit in our hearts to bring conviction or assurance, may we be sensitive to that, sensitive to your leading. We ask your blessing on the food that we're about to partake of, on the fellowship that we're about to partake of. May we consider the question of repentance at our tables. Bless the food to our bodies. Bless our time together. May it be pleasing to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. And amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.